two veteran astronauts and their mission to get more people into space. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Between them, veteran NASA astronauts Janet Cavandi and Thomas Marshburn have logged more than 370 days in space. Now they're working for Sierra Space on a mission to launch humans on the company's Dream Chaser spacecraft. We'll speak with Cavandi and Marshburn about how their space flight experience is helping them write the next chapter in commercial space exploration. Then, NASA's Perseverance rover uncovered evidence of organic molecules on Mars. We'll speak with Amy Williams, a mission scientist and University of Florida astrobiologist, about what the findings mean in Percy's search for signs of ancient life on the Red Planet. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? Sierra Space's Dream Chaser looks like a small space shuttle, and it has big ambitions. The company was awarded NASA contracts to use the spacecraft to send cargo to the International Space Station, and Sierra Space plans to ship supplies to future commercial space stations when they come online. And it also has plans to take people to orbit, too. Leading the charge to carry humans in its Dream Chaser are two people with backgrounds in spaceflight, both veteran NASA astronauts. They're now at Sierra Space, and they join us now to talk about those efforts. Janet Cavandi is Sierra Space's president and chief science officer, and Thomas Marshburn serves as chief medical officer for the company. So, Janet, we've spoken with people from Sierra Space before about the company's cargo plans, but I think the real exciting portion of Sierra Space is its human missions. Tell us a bit about the ambitions your company has to send humans into orbit. Well, of course, this is my personal passion, is to send people to space. So I am very excited to be leading the Human Spaceflight Office at Sierra Space. And our plans are to uh, eventually develop a human-rated vehicle that will look similar to the cargo version of the Dream Chaser. If you haven't seen the Dream Chaser, it is a winged vehicle, and it looks a lot like a smaller version of the space shuttle. If people remember the space shuttle, uh, the people who are real avid space fans will, you know, likely very well remember the space shuttle. I'm a space shuttle hugger. I've always said that. And I was I had the honor of flying on it three times. So when I decided to leave NASA, my objective was to try to get us back to a spacecraft that could land back on our runway, having had that experience. So this new vehicle uh, will land on a runway, uh, much like the space shuttle did. It will come back here to the Kennedy Space Center landing facility, which is now the launch and landing facility. And that will be our initial landing site. But we have many other options for landing sites. We're also developing our own training academy. We'll be selecting our own professional astronauts and doing a process similar to the one that NASA had. These will be career astronauts, people whose job it will be to fly to space. But we'll also entertain other customers who will do science on board and manufacturing on board a space station, as well as people who just want to go out for the experience of flying in space. Janet, you come with shuttle experience. Tom, you've ridden on quite a few different spacecraft. Uh, tell us a bit about your background in space flight um, and how that's helping Sierra Space develop these protocols and these programs to, to get astronauts into orbit. Uh, I think what's relevant for the company is I was an engineer and then became a, a doctor and an ER doc. 
uh, prior to joining NASA. And so that allowed me when I first joined NASA to be a flight surgeon. So I was a, a doctor that takes care of astronauts and, and NASA's pilots for their aircraft. And then I had the privilege of actually joining the astronaut corps. Uh, I was a member of the astronaut corps for 18 years. And as you, as you mentioned, I had a chance to fly on three different vehicles, the, the shuttle and then the Soyuz and then the, uh, the SpaceX Dragon. And so I, I think given the, I did five spacewalks as well. I think given the spaceflight experience, but also the, the work as a medical person that works with astronauts seemed to be useful for the company. So that's how I got here. Janet, you've, you've flown on shuttle. And, and as you mentioned, you know, the, the spacecraft, it's winged. You can't help but think that it is a, a tiny little space shuttle in itself. What kind of lessons have you taken from the, you know, NASA space shuttle program and applied it to Sierra Space's Dream Chaser? Well, one of the most prominent ones is that we're launching on top of the rocket. Um, if we recall the the sad events at Columbia, or um, especially Columbia, when we had foam come off the external tank and damage the wing that caused the loss of Columbia, uh, we don't have that risk because we're sitting on top of the rocket. So that's one physical difference, you know, that we're um, allowing ourselves to remove some of that risk because people you know, might automatically think, well, we can't go back to a winged vehicle. They have a problem with the wing. So we're removing that um, opportunity for, not that the, all opportunities or for damage are, aren't gone, but at least that one major one is. Um, a lot of just the experience from NASA's uh, space shuttle program, uh, how we how we do abort systems, how we do spacesuits. We're designing our first spacesuit for a launch landing scenario and and potentially an abort. So any time time you have a vehicle that comes back to a runway, you may need to abort if there's not enough energy to make that runway. So we're working on that abort system, water survival training. Um, we already are working with people who are um, happy to work with us to recover people if we did have to go into the water. All the training that's necessary to uh, fly in a winged vehicle, escape, you know, hatches, uh, and everything we have to do to prepare people, select people that are qualified to do that, will go into the Dream Chaser program. Tom, there are a lot more people getting the opportunity to go to space um, with commercial partners, including. SpaceX, which, you know, that's how you took your, your last trip to the uh, International Space Station on. How is the kind of this commercial boom of astronaut transportation helping astronauts prepare for spaceflight? Are, are you learning things about the, the physiological challenges and training that needs to go into these space flights that you're applying to Sierra Space's program? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a brave new world in a lot of good ways in that regard. Uh, we had to be super conservative back in the 60s and 70s in our selection criteria. We didn't know what it was, was going to be like. I think NASA has to remain that conservative. But the people that will be flying with us are, are going to be true pioneers because we want them to self-select in the sense that they say, I want to fly in space and we try to make it happen. Now, obviously, there's a baseline of, of risk we need to, to minimize. We want them to be safe. But having said that, we can apply you know, extra medical safety to them. We can, you know, supply more su medical equipment if we need to, even a, an individual that is uh, trained to help them in a medical way if they, if they require it. But also, I think we, we are going to be able to really look deeply at each person's medical history and figure out, is this really a problem for spaceflight? We have enough experience now to where we think we can open the doors uh, to people flying in space that may not have considered, considered it before. 
uh, even people that are differently abled, um, you know, why not have people uh, that go up there that say no legs? You really don't need them in space. And so as a matter of fact, they're, you're a bit at a disadvantage if you have them. Uh, so um, there's all kinds of things we're looking forward to. Both our astronauts are going to be pioneers, but we think we're going to be able to really expand the envelope for who gets to fly in space. And, and Janet, tell me a bit about what the actual experience may be like. What is it going to be like inside the vehicle itself, you know, compared to, you know, it looked like when, when Tom was on Crew 3, he had quite a bit of room in, in uh, SpaceX's vehicle compared to Soyuz, where you don't have much much leg room in there. Tell us a bit about what, what the actual spaceflight experience is going to be like for these future astronauts. Uh, absolutely. So quite a bit of room is a relative term. So yes, um, Soyuz is very tight and compressed. Uh, you're shoulder to shoulder. So everything is pretty much bigger than that. The actually the volume inside the Dream Chaser is very similar to the habitable bo- volume or the pressurized volume of the space shuttle. So the part where the, the astronauts lived in the flight deck and the mid deck is very similar in volume to what the Dream Chaser will provide. Uh, if you include the the payload containment system, the the cargo module attached to it, uh, I was just giving a tour to the former Jim Bridenstine, the former NASA administrator, uh, yesterday and. And they were very surprised at how much volume they could see inside there when we showed them the mock-up. So I think once, you know, obviously we'll have to be strapped in for launch. You'll go through the whole amazingly exhilarating launch experience. Uh, And then once you unstrap uh, in orbit, uh, you'll be able to float around. We've all seen images of, you know, Blue Origins uh, opportunities to fly suborbital. It's a lot of people in a small space, so you have to be respectful that you don't kick each other in the head or something like that, but uh, you still have the exhilaration of feeling weightlessness. Now, the real experience, though, is when we get to our commercial space station, which is the whole point, is the transportation to get to the space station. Then, you have, of course, you open up into this much larger volume, like going from a space shuttle into uh, the International Space Station. You just open up into this whole new world that allows you to float freely um, and and really expand your your volume to, to work in. And that just brings huge smiles to faces, as, as you've seen many times in the videos when people go through the hatches and, and see their friends and experience weightlessness and that kind of volume. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with Sierra Spaces, Janet Cavandi and Thomas Marshburn, both veteran NASA astronauts, about plans to send humans into orbit on the company's upcoming Dream Chaser spacecraft. Let's talk about getting to that point, Tom. You mentioned earlier that, you know, a lot of these astronauts that will be flying on here will be, you know, kind of self-selected to be, you know, capable of, of doing this, but also that the kind of requirements are, are less conservative as, you know, decades ago. What is the training going to be like, specifically training physically for, for this experience? And, and how is that developing as, as you prepare for crewed missions? Well, we're going to have a minimum standard. Uh, an individual is going to have to be able to take care of themselves. That is, get in, the seat, get in their suit, attach their suit to their seat so in case of an emergency return or, or some kind of anomaly or concern. So that training will be there. We'll also, as Janet mentioned, the, some of our uh, emergency return, if the crew has to, to bail out, for instance, just like we did with the shuttle. So all that will need to be trained. We will always, uh, as far as we can tell today, uh, we'll have a trained Sierra Space, at least one trained Sierra Space astronaut who can assist uh, all of our, uh, 
what we call experiential and our specialist astronauts that are flying with us. And so uh, with that help, they'll have to do that. Uh, we suspect that um, they'll all have a centrifuge run. So they'll be able to experience what it's like to experience the G's in the centrifuge. So starting with that as the minimum, just so we can we know that they can take care of themselves and be part of a crew that has to respond to any kind of anomaly, then that's that's the base. After that, it's, it's what they want to do. And if they're a, I'd say, a scientist from a university or, or a company, then of course that university or company makes sure that they are up to snuff to getting the research done they need to or the work done. And we're there to help them make sure they are successful, that they can pull it off. We have experience in our company on working in zero G and we're there to help them uh, make sure they can get that done. So that training program will be unique for them. Janet, you mentioned that there is a an uncrewed launch coming up of the Dream Chaser. How much is riding in that mission for for the future crewed mission? What are some things that you're you're looking at, and and how will the development of the uncrewed vehicle pave the way for the crewed vehicle? Oh, absolutely, a great question. You know, if you recall back, that um, Sierra Nevada Corporation competed for the opportunity to fly crew back when Boeing and uh, SpaceX were awarded that contract. So. Sierra Nevada did not win that, but they did win the commercial cargo contract, which is CCRS2, I think CRS2. So we originally started out as a crewed vehicle, so then we modified it into a cargo vehicle. So a lot of the design that went into the original vehicle carries over to the cargo and will go back into a crewed vehicle. Uh, we have learned that we would like to make the, the crewed vehicle a little bit larger Part of that is for safety reasons. We want to make sure that the crew has the ability to get in the seats and get out of the seats and egress. Um, if if the pressure and the volume decreases to the point where the suits expand, then you're kind of a, a balloon in, in your suit and you're you're bigger than normal. So and you're working against that pressure. So allowing us to be able to egress down the aisle and get out is, is one of the highest safety priorities. Other than that, it's enlarging our ability to provide life support. Uh, we do have basic life support in the non-crude version. That's so that we can allow um, biological samples and rodents to fly up on the current uncrewed version. Uh, we could also use the current uncrewed version as an emergency return vehicle. It does have enough life support to be able to take someone down in an emergency and get them to a hospital if they can't be treated on the ISS today, for instance. So uh, we're just building on all of that heritage and elaborating into a much more developed system for a professional crew that will hopefully carry up to six people. And, and Janet, with, with the caveat that, that things change in, in spaceflight schedules, do you have a target date for when that first crew will fly? Well, I have been tying everything to the first launch of the uncrewed vehicle. So our plan is to, after we launch and land and have a successful first mission, I would like to go out and announce our human spaceflight program. At that point, we will um, essentially go out and advertise for our career commercial astronauts. So those will be the first um, large-scale selection of commercial professional crew. And like I said earlier, um, we will be essentially a worldwide application process. Uh, we will try to open the aperture up and select people um, that ne not necessarily have ever had the opportunity to uh, apply before. But to Tom's point, he's the chief medical officer and he has the final 
call on what is and isn't going to work for our professionals. And so these people would be flying multiple times. They would stay up there for months at a time, even up to a year. They would be very much in uh, alignment with what NASA has done for their professional astronauts. So I think that gives us the greatest chance of success for career people, allows us to help the new people that want to come on board and, and be specialists, which are the scientists and engineers who want to do research and engineering on board, manufacturing, as well as the experiential who, by definition, want to experience space for them, themselves. We know they'll need a little help. So these career people will be the ones that, uh, that help them out. And, and finally, Tom, by my count, you've been on three different types of vehicles, correct? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And any chance a fourth? Will you be, will you be flying on Dream Chaser? If the opportunity arises, I would love to. I think uh, most employees would uh, absolutely love to. In particular, some of our destinations, you know, we're building the, the life module that will have docked to orbital reef. And I've been inside of a pressurized module there. That, that's a real game changer. It, it took my breath away when I went inside of that. Uh, it was on the ground, pressurized module. It's, it's huge and it's uh, beautiful. So, yeah, I'd love to. And Janet, how about you? Are you going to stick to the business of sending people up there or are you going to get to go yourself? <laughs> Well, you know, as tempting as it might be, I have promised my family that my flying days are over. Uh, although, you know, I can't say that I'm not tempted strongly to go up there again and uh, see the earth again from that vantage point and, and feel that freedom of weightlessness. It's uh, something that you never get tired of and uh, your body almost craves again. But I'm, I'm trying to be good and uh, allow more and more people the opportunity through opening this up to as many new people as possible. But we will need, to Tom's point, we will need to find some experienced people to train the next generation. So I do uh, definitely intend to assign some clone crew members to help train each successive crew member. That was Sierra Space's Janet Cavandi and Thomas Marshburn, both veteran NASA astronauts. Still to come, Percy spots organic molecules on Mars. What does this mean for the hunt for signs of life? That's ahead on Are We There Yet? You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. The Perseverance rover has been exploring Mars, searching for ancient signs of life. It recently discovered traces of organic molecules in 10 sample sites on the Red Planet. So what does this mean in Percy's hunt for ancient evidence of life on Mars? Well, here to talk more about the findings is Amy Williams, an astrobiologist at the University of Florida and Perseverance mission scientist. Well, Amy Williams, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me back. All right, Amy, I'm going to walk you through what happens whenever I see a headline that says organic compounds found on Mars. One, I get excited. Two, I reach out to you uh, to explain what it all means. <laughs> so we are in step two of my process here. <laughs> what What's with the new uh, findings of organic compounds um, from the Perseverance rover on the surface of Mars? Hit us with it. Yeah, I think you're, you're seeing, uh, you know, this evolution of this story. So I'll start out by saying that you know, the instrument we're using with Perseverance is different from the instrument on Curiosity. And so when we say we see, you know, evidence for organics, what we're seeing with Perseverance and specifically the Sherlock instrument are signals from that instrument, both uh, using what's called Raman and using fluorescence. 
and it is uh, these signals that are consistent with organics. They actually do have some other possible interpretations. So one of the things in the most recent paper that came out is that um, there is a, a potential that an inorganic component might actually have a role to play in this signal as well. And so the signal, it's always, Mars is always so tricky, right? Either it's, you know, organics or it's inorganic or it's a mixture of both. But what we're seeing are a couple of different lines of evidence that are consistent with very, you know, simple, small, one or two ring organic compounds, very likely, um, on Mars. For for people like me who did not do very well in chemistry when they were in high school, uh, what does that one or two ring organic compound mean? <laughs> What's the significance? Yeah, no, it's a very common question. And, you know, I also did not do super well in chemistry in college. And I had to, you know, there, yeah, I had to build myself up. So if you think about, you know, all the complex organic carbon that makes up life as we know it, go way simpler than that. Picture um, if you had a, a circle, but you kind of put six points around it. That's actually what a simple organic ring structure can look like, where each of these points is a carbon. So that kind of thing is called a, a benzene. That's the kind of very simple organic carbon molecule that, you know, we might be able to to say these these spectra are consistent with. So it's things that can be made by geologic processes or they can be delivered by meteorites to Mars. It doesn't have to be life. And in fact, you know, we lean away from that interpretation right now because Saying there's life on Mars is so extraordinary, you do need that extraordinary evidence to back it up. Mm -hmm. But because they are so, I guess, small might not be the right word for this, but because they are so simple like that, does it make them difficult to to identify? And is, is that what Perseverance is able to do better than than previous rovers have done? Oh, you are, you're spot on with the difficulty in, in um, identifying and saying where they're from. So, um, so perseverance is, is a lot of the instruments on board are meant to help us triage samples for Mars sample return. And so what we want to do is be able to say there are interesting things, whatever those things are in these samples. And so that's how we know which ones we want to collect and, um, you know, put into our cache so that they could be returned to earth with Mars sample return. So we're not here to say this is exactly a benzene uh, with, you know, these specific functional groups or pieces that are attached to it. We're just saying this looks consistent with, you know, maybe a single ring organic carbon molecule. And we know organic carbon is a basis for life on Earth. Therefore, we are very interested in what the origin of these molecules may be. So it could be one of those building blocks but you want to get your hands on this, right? That that has been the 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 center of all of our conversations over the past few months. Is that this is an incredible finding, but we got to get our hands on it, right? Yeah, this is like a whole new realm, really, because you know when we think about working with the Curiosity mission, that that mission is not set up to collect samples for return to Earth, right? So what you get on Mars is is what you get and what you work with, and you make your interpretations the best you can. I think one of the really uh, crazy things as a scientist is that what we're doing is collecting samples um, and then making these interpretations on Mars like we normally do. But knowing that, you know, this might all get turned on its head in a few decades when these samples are returned. And, you know, as a scientist, I'm not afraid of that because that just 
gives us so much ground truth for understanding what we do see on Mars with our remote uh, instruments, with our rovers, so we can make better interpretations on the ground with future missions. With that caveat said, though, I mean, these could be considered the building blocks of, of some sort of life. But that is not very surprising because that's what you expected to find, right? I mean, this is this is what the the mission is out there looking for. Yeah, we're we're looking for samples that have the potential to preserve evidence for ancient life. So when you see organic carbon like this, we know that that is one of the building blocks that you want for for life as we know it. So seeing it, um, seeing it present, you know, with curiosity and now with perseverance, even though these appear very simple molecules. Seeing that that breadth of uh, distribution is really important for us to understand, you know, did Mars have all the building blocks for life as we know it? They're, they're simple molecules, but you're seeing them consistently, right? I mean, I, I think that this is the, all 10 targets in this particular paper. They, they found this this compound in it. That's a that's a good sign, right? Oh, we saw. Yeah. So the, the signal that can in some ways be interpreted to be organics. We did see that in those those 10 you know, little targets. Um, yeah, there are there's uh, fluorescent spectra that some of them are consistent with organics, but there's some inorganic interpretations that we're kicking around. Then there's also the Raman, which tells you about, you know, a more more, I would say like macromolecular, meaning somewhat more complex organics. Again, does not mean it's life. Uh, this stuff is made readily in interstellar space, and so trying to deconvolve these very low intensity signals you know we're, we're like we're getting little hints every day about what's going on on mars but there's nothing screaming at us this is you know this complex organic there's nothing origin diagnostic to tell us that we're seeing evidence for life but it is these building blocks that help us to understand how mars might have supported a biosphere in the past are, are these hints changing where you're looking next or is it still business as usual um so the the paper that came out recently was reporting on findings from the Crater Floor campaign, which was um, the sort of the campaign prior to where we are now, which was up on the Delta fan structure. And so um, I think that upcoming work is going to be able to really dig into whether we see things that are consistent with what we saw on the Crater Floor. Are there greater signals of, of these potential molecules? Is there less signal? And so that's sort of what's coming up next is that understanding the difference between these environments in the same crater setting. And when might we expect some of those uh, findings to to come through? Uh, one of our big annual meetings uh, is coming up in December. And so uh, I think that we'll have abstracts going in there. And then our, our big meetings in the spring, especially the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference, we tend to have uh, a lot, a big showing from the missions there. So um, keep an eye out. That's where we'll probably see some of these great comparisons coming out soon. There's always something fascinating happening on Mars, and there's always a great chemistry lesson on uh, this segment with you. We've been speaking with Amy Williams. She's an astrobiologist at the University of Florida and a scientist on NASA's Perseverance rover mission. Amy, we'll see you next month. Sounds great. Thanks. That's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Subscribe on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit wmfe.org space. 
Are we there yet? Is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Our producer is Marion Summerall. Our intern is Amy Diaz. Editorial guidance from Latoya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brandon Byrne. Thanks for listening.